This is The Lab with Helen Rollins, Benjamin Studebaker, and Nina Power. Today we're doing the rehearsal, and I will kick us off. His name is Nathan Fielder, and he graduated from one of Canada's top business schools with really good grades. Now he's making a show for HBO called The Rehearsal. Nathan finds people who think they have something important coming up that they need to prepare for. He helps them by preparing elaborate rehearsals. In the first episode, a guy named Cor wants to admit to a friend, Trisha, that he misrepresented his level of education. You see, Cor claimed to have a master's degree, when in fact he only has his bachelor's. He did this to seem cool when he first met Trisha, and he's kept the ruse going for years. But now he wants to come clean, and he thinks he needs to prepare. Cor plans to meet Trisha in a bar, so Nathan builds a replica of the bar down to the last detail. He hires actors to play everyone in the bar. He even arranges for an actress to meet Trisha, so that she can copy Trisha's mannerisms. Together, Cor and Nathan do an enormous number of rehearsals, until Cor feels ready to do it for real. In another episode, Nathan helps a woman named Angela, who wants to rehearse for motherhood. Nathan acquires a farmhouse for Angela in rural Oregon and decorates it in precisely the style she prefers. He hires a rotating roster of child actors to play a son at various ages. When Angela's boyfriend drops out of the project, Nathan himself steps in to play the husband. Having inserted himself into Angela's rehearsal, Nathan starts a conflict with Angela over whether the son should be raised as a Christian or a Jew. He begins pretending to take the son to swimming class, when in fact he is taking the son to Jewish religious education classes. Eventually, the instructor, a woman named Miriam, discovers that Nathan is pretending to co-parent a child with a devout Christian. Miriam tries to talk to Angela to persuade her to allow Nathan to raise the child as a Jew. It doesn't go well. Miriam accuses Angela of anti-Semitism, and Angela decides to abandon the rehearsal. Nathan begins raising the son alone, her rehearsal having become his own. As the credits roll, we watch Nathan discuss the Israeli-Palestinian conflict with Miriam. Miriam is a committed Zionist, and we get the sense that Nathan thinks Miriam is no better than Angela. There's a lot more. At one point, Nathan has the child actor playing his son, now a teenager, pretend to be angry with Nathan for working too much and spending too little time at home. The teenage child actor pretends to be increasingly out of control and then has a fake drug overdose. There's an episode where Nathan teaches an acting class. He's unsure whether he's a good teacher, so he decides to rehearse teaching the acting class by hiring actors to play the acting students. He hires an actor to play himself. He then takes his own class, playing the part of one of the students. In an attempt to get inside the head of the student he's playing, he arranges to live in the student's house. There are a lot of other details I'm skipping over. These rehearsals are very intricate. We are recording the episode of this podcast before the final episode of the rehearsals first season has been released, and we don't yet know how this will all end. The key thing is that, at least as far as we can tell, the people Nathan helps are not actors. They are real people. The rehearsals involve a lot of deception. Nathan often lies to the people he's helping to get information to use in the rehearsals or to produce emotional reactions that he feels contribute to the authenticity of the rehearsals. But all of these people signed appearance releases. You get the sense that they wanted to be on HBO, and they were willing to put up with a lot to make it happen. 
Unlike many reality TV shows, the joke is, for the most part, not on them. The reactions Nathan provokes illustrate the absurdity of the situations he creates. Nathan pretends to be deeply socially stunted, in part to sell these situations to the people he interacts with. But Nathan knows they are funny. This is a seasoned comedian at a mature stage in his career, with much more confidence than he lets on. He knows that it's not possible to control everything by rehearsing. The concept of the show emerged from Fielder's previous work on a show called Nathan For You. On that show, Nathan uses his business knowledge to help struggling small business owners make it in this competitive world. Of course, the ideas he proposes are often impractical, ridiculous, or deeply unethical. Still, the petty bourgeoisie would often try the things Nathan would suggest. Sometimes they genuinely bought into the absurd proposals, and sometimes you get the sense that they were doing it to be on TV. Nathan would prepare pitches for these business owners, and he would extensively rehearse for them to ensure that no matter how the business owners responded to his crazy ideas, he would be able to say something funny for the television audience without breaking character. But in practice, even with extensive rehearsals, things often did not go the way he expected. Real business owners would often behave unpredictably, and no matter how hard Nathan tried to build conversation trees, he often found he had little control over how things went. It is that lesson that Nathan attempts to convey through this show. He conveys it by playing a fictionalized version of himself that does not understand it. We are supposed to critique the version of himself that he is playing while recognizing the artistic genius of the real fielder, the man who plays Nathan on TV. Some critics online aren't having it. They think Fielder is exploiting the the people he does rehearsals with, or that Fielder has a cruel and arrogant gaze. What about the voices of the people Nathan includes in these rehearsals, the array of actors he employs, the film crew, and the people he helps, like Cora and Angela? What do they really think about their experiences? Why isn't Fielder interested in what they feel about all this? These critics have missed the point entirely. Fielder is deeply interested in how these people feel, but he knows you can never get the answer by asking them. Ask, and you get an answer that is shaped by the fact that this is a TV show. Recently, Angela was asked how she feels about the show by some journalists, and she gave an answer that really tells you very little. Asked why she left the show, she said, quote, It had become more so Nathan's rehearsal instead of mine, and since we didn't agree about how to proceed, I'm not the boss, so it was time for me to go and let Nathan do his thing. That much is clear from watching the show. Interviewing is a weak social science method because in an interview, the subjects know they're being interviewed. Interviewing people on television or for magazines or newspapers is even worse because the subjects are acutely aware of the number of people who may hear their answers. Reality shows only pretend to take an interest in real people. Nathan is trying to do something more, a television show that works as an ethnography, and an ethnography that works as a television show. By usurping Angela's rehearsal, knowing full well that this is what he is doing, he pivots toward autoethnography. But as the autoethnography moves forward, Fielder explores its fundamental limitations. We cannot actually give ourselves the experiences of another, no matter how much we immerse ourselves in situations similar to their own. When we try to get to the bottom of things by treating ourselves as the subjects of study, 
our own awareness of the fact that we are subjects of a study, the methodology of which we are highly familiar, prevents us from really having the experiences we seek. No amount of planning allows us to have experiences in advance or to have the experiences of another person or even to give ourselves experiences that are analogous to the experiences we might plan for another. The further Fielder delves into his method, the more he critiques it, and again, it's clear that this is intentional. At a time when autoethnography is being critiqued for other reasons, Fielder shows us both why this research method is so enticing and yet so often fruitless. Anthropologists cannot help but think that they will learn something from ethnography, but the lesson of ethnography all too often is that ethnographies don't keep their promises. They are, paradoxically, useful precisely insofar as they are useless. We only learn not to do ethnography by doing it, or by watching Nathan Fielder do it. So now, let's hear what Nina has to say. Okay, yeah, I'm very impressed with this show. I, th- I think it's actually bordering on genius, uh, I think, for, for multiple reasons. I, th- I think the phrase, I suppose, that, that Fielder is uh, dealing with in an implicit way is this idea like uh, that people will say, life is not a rehearsal. Right. So so the idea that I guess in our normal lives or, or the other version of that would be uh, life is not like it is in, in the movies or something like this. Right. Like that, that there is this kind of real thing which we can't practice for um, because we're sort of already immersed in it. And I think Fielder in this really um incredible way in this like multi-layered uh both sort of like brechtian uh kind of uh i don't know postmodern it's almost like Lars von Trier's uh dogville and it's kind of it's sort of stripped down uh but also like dogma and these kind of art house projects where there is all these kind of restrictions and constraints um and also I was reminded of, of the five obstructions and you know there's a real uh, serious high art component to to what he's doing which is to do with this very question of rehearsing and acting um it's also very contemporary in the sense of we live in an era that tries to gamify social relations. Um, his kind of autistic flow chart, the idea that you could map out every possible interaction and he recreates, uh, you know, in, in unbelievable detail, these kind of, um, scenarios and these, these bars, um, and these places for people to rehearse their, their confession or the, or the interaction that they need to have on some serious, uh, existential issue. Um, and it could be a slight existential issue, but it's the weight that's afforded to it by the the, the, the person, which makes it also kind of a, an exercise in psychoanalysis. Like it's very profound. There's one um, uh, one person who uh, it's to do with an inheritance, and through the rehearsal, one particular version of the rehearsal, that the the question is clearly solved for the for the person, the individual who's rehearsing it, so that the actual interaction never happens, because it, in a sense it has happened, but it was a, a fake version of the real event. But the feelings were real, and I, I think, you know, insofar as we can we can tell, okay. And of course, there is this co- multiple complexities in this whole setup, which is yes, the extent to which, as Benjamin identified, that the extent to which people are participating as 
themselves in heavily inverted commas and participating as uh, members of a show that is put on by HBO and there are cameras around. And in that sense, it kind of um, gets to the core of the reality TV question and also the question psychoanalytically or religiously of the big other. Like, what is it? What What is it? How is it that people actually behave? To what extent are they indeed always performing and what extent are we always performing we are all we also engage in forms of um rehearsal whether it's um pre-hoc or post-hoc i don't know if pre-hoc is a phrase but you know when we have the when we we have a, a a conversation like that we feel we need to have with someone we might rehearse it in our head repeatedly and certainly we've all experienced that um the french you know have that beautiful phrase uh l'esprit d'escalier like what the the spirit of the staircase when you've finished having your conversation and you realize what it is that you ought to have said that would have been the thing you know so we constantly rehearse and re-rehearse scenarios in our head which is in a way field or field what fielder is doing in this kind of like a uh, sort of form of like almost like um intellectual intuition is he's kind of bringing to life the the fantasies and the rehearsals that we all <laughs> engage in but in this extremely literal way and 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 so fielder's you know and again the the undecidability of fielder's character whether he is playing to what extent he is playing himself, to what extent is he playing the role of somebody who is incapable of understanding the feelings of others um, and therefore needs all these other constraints and, and um, parameters in order to, to, to try to get close to what it is like to be somebody else. But of course, psychoanalytically, it's, it's, there is no kernel of the other. There is no kernel of the self either. Right. So the whole thing is predicated on this, uh, you know, deliberate fantasy that you can literally identify what it is to be a particular person. Right. And, it, and in that sense, it's also a kind of genius move. And it, and, and it reminded me then of, um, Philip K. Dick in, um, in particular, I guess, you know, in the Blade Runner film, the idea of how, how on earth can you differentiate between the replicant and the human? Right. It's, it's actually not very easy to tell the difference between, you know, somebody who's an android who's playing the role of a human in every possible way, including with memories. And there's a whole aspect of this, which is to do with fake creating, uh, memories, for example, in the speeded up experience of what it is to have a family, uh, which again, just, just like breathtaking ideas of what it is to, rehearse particular um, existential experiences. So it's not just the odd encounter, it's like entire lifetimes that he's trying to frame as as possible experiences. Um, and, you know, and, and I think this, this one moment where... Um, We'll have to put a spoiler alert on this episode, by the way, because <laughs> I wouldn't want to ruin it for, for people who haven't seen it. And they, I think, you know, people should, should absolutely watch this from start to finish. And we haven't seen the final episode, but the, the idea that you could start again, you know, there's this unbelievable moment where he, he's participating in the family project in which they've speeded up the, the life. Uh, of a family and because it goes wrong because the teenager is you know very upset because the the father who is a uh, fielder has been away for many years and comes back in the in the lifetime of the project um he he starts again he goes back to to the boy being his son quote unquote being six again as if you could have a do-over which is again this like unbelievably uh profound thing and i i think 
I, yeah, I haven't read too many of the criticisms, but I didn't want to spoil my my viewing um, of the show, which, as I say, I I, I think is is genuinely um, you know fantastic in about sort of five or six different main ways, and I've tried to identify. But I think Fielder knows very well that he's participating also in um, a theatre of cruelty, and in but but it, the shows I I don't think are themselves cruel. I th- I think it is a mistake to think that they are cruel. I th- but I think what he's doing is. And I think I think there is even a nod to it, but maybe I'm reading too much into it. Where it a nod to Salo, Pasolini's great film Salo, where the the, the boy gets him to eat uh, poo, which is like one of the main scenes in Salo, which is you know one of the most shocking images in in Western cinema. And I wonder, I really at that point I was thinking. You know, how clever is Fielder? I mean, this is like, I think he's, he's honestly extremely clever. I think there's, he, I think he knows very well, like the Lars von Trier and the Pasolini and all of these other references. But of course, his, um, performance is this kind of normie, you know, and every time anyone talks about sort of sex or drugs or, or something, he pretends to be, uh, shocked, and I'm not therefore suggesting, for example, that Fielder hasn't has taken drugs. For example, like he prob- he possibly hasn't. He possibly is the kind of person who wouldn't or hasn't. But he's also playing the role of a character of or of somebody who is so normy because it helps him to get people to speak to him. And I, I think this, I I don't know how, how to put it, like this this fundamental undecidability on every level of what he's doing um i think is uh i absolutely acute and i and i'm very interested when the final episode finishes or comes around i'd like to think more about it in um perhaps more kind of moral and theological terms but i i don't quite have all of the ways of doing that and and the other just to finish the the other thing it slightly reminded me of is is some of the later Darren Brown when Darren Brown becomes very interested in moral questions and he has a show called Trick or Treat in which people pick a card and he either gives them a like a quote unquote good experience or a quote unquote bad experience but they're very very again like um uh, adapted to the precise sort of desires and psychoanalytic makeup of the person that he's talking to so there's one where there's a concert pianist who's be- become unable to perform and he he works out ways psychologically to get her to to perform again uh, and in the end she she stumbles in the final performance but but does a brilliant performance nevertheless and there's this kind of brilliant incorporation of failure and success right and i think um fielder is is doing something um, very much like this, like he's showing us both the absence of our, of, of any kernel and pretending as if that we could identify a literal kernel of ourself or another that we could then repeat or, uh, interact with in an orderly way when there clearly isn't. Um, but I think also, yeah, just this, I think ultimately there, there were, there will be, or there is a kind of moral or even theological message to this show, which, um, well, remains to maybe be finalised in the in the the last episode. All right. So let's hear what Helen thought. Yes, I thought this was an incredible, incredible piece of work. Um, very heartfelt, very engaging, and I think 
that this is precisely to do with the level of distance and parameters that are kind of set up. So, you know, we had the, the sitcom in the past and there's morphs into, we have the, you know, the reality TV that sort of emerged in the 90s or whatever. And this is sort of some kind of syllogism between sitcom and reality TV that really produces something completely new. And, you know, just, you know, the, the, the phrase we always hear, only a Christian can be an atheist. And this is something just to, I'll come on into a second, which uh, Benjamin shared this hilarious, uh, hilariously angry, like critical response to this, which obviously goes to show just how powerful this was as a, as a, as a, as a project that it could elicit such um, a strangely intense reaction, which I think um, created its own ripple on social media. Um, this sort of really literalist response. But the um, but yeah, the, the level of distance and dryness instigating all these rules, etc., really um, encounters us with the people in the show in such a sympathetic way. I think. I think these these characters really come across as, as so human, and you know, even even you know, this is this is. Louis Theroux might have a very small, tiny essence of this in terms of eliciting um, a sort of, you know, um, even, a, you know, I mean, Louis Theroux obviously looks at kind of uh, controversial people, but eliciting a human element. And precisely, I think, as Nina, you said, this sort of um, transferential relationship that the characters have with this man, particularly because he's a, he's a, he's a blank slate. And we can also talk about how you know, psychoanalysis, in a sense, is a form of this kind of rehearsal, this repetition that happens over and over and over and over and over again. And it's really only working, not necessarily because of the repetition, but in the repetition, basically talking about the same shit over and over again with somebody who is a divided subject that we come to understand as a divided subject. And so, you know, the, the nooks and crannies of their own subjectivity, the brokenness of their subjectivity is what makes psychoanalysis work. Um, I mean, there's loads of there's loads of sort of like minorly psychoanalytic insights that come up a lot. You know, for instance, core in the first episode, it's not to do with projection. What you think other people think about you is really what you think about yourself. And most people are actually sort of indifferent. And so his very sweet, um, obsessive fear of having, um, you know, like exaggerated his grades because he wanted to be seen more as more intelligent in his trivia trivia group and obviously this is to do with his own insecurities and that he sees himself as not uh, as not you know as an intellectual powerhouse that he might otherwise have been and he projects onto this um friend of his a sort of intense rage that that doesn't really exist at all and in fact you know this is to do with um the fact that not only are people you know um slightly hidden to us in terms of their their what's going on inside inside their minds but they're also busy with their own lives because um, you know, we we aren't we we do not live in a solipsistic universe. We are all individuals with our own lives, and it is this collision of the individual living in community with others that makes us a speaking subject, which is precisely predicated on the fact that everybody is divided, everybody is slightly indifferent. It's all very important for the um, for the emergence of human subjectivity, which is this amazing amazing thing. But to talk about um subjectivity a little bit this does speak into i think a, a bit of what we were talking about last last week when we talked about sort of um social media in relation to um alienation um the it's, it's subjectivity and intersubjectivity in the age of social media so i was just about to say this is so stupid i've got my nephews staying here and she's spanish and i was just about to say above all in spanish and like an english accent which sounds sorry that sounded really stupid to myself but anyway okay what was i saying 
Um, yeah, so so particularly um, in terms of you know uh, lockdown and working from home and the intersubjectivity when when it's relating to a screen. Obviously, this is on a screen, but what is being drawn out in these individuals is a subjectivity that is very divided in this sort of pathetic, very human um, display. When we, I think the most dangerous element of social media, and I think it's becoming more and more prevalent as this, or, or obviously prevalent, as social media organizations in this new sort of fourth industrial revolution have to start to make money. So before, you know, early on, they sort of become these platforms that are kind of nice and a free space and blah, 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 blah. And then um, at a certain point now, now we see with Instagram, we don't really see each other's posts. We just see sort of sponsored content or reels, which take more and more labor to produce, to generate more and more value for Instagram. And we become more and more alienated because we do not see the other in their div dividedness, but rather in a, a projected totality. And this is um, obfuscated all the more with this sort of um, wokish confessional capitalism, which commoditizes, um, which pretends to display publicly something about the private, but it reprivatizes the public um, in terms of this commoditized confession. So even when we are showing our dividedness, it is a commoditized entity. And when something is commoditized because of the logic of capitalism, because the commodity promises transcendence, it promises wholeness and completeness, it does not show the dividedness of the human subject. In fact, it re, um, represses that division. And that division is so important for the development of the self, for recognition, for speech, for everything to do with experiencing oneself as a human subject that is not like horrendously alienated, horrendously, you know, cut off from, I'm not to say that there is a true human experience because, you know, we're not really beings of essence, but being sort of experience in relation to divided others. And I just think this show really nicely goes against the grain of this, you know, because as you say, Nita, it has this sort of like Eurodivergent element to it, let's just say. But this isn't, you know, these aren't. This isn't a commoditized um, patheticism. This is really a display that we can only really get to the heart of the human through these constraints, through this repetition, through this interaction. And we have these human subjects on display. And I think this is like really the opposite of the kind of alienation, intersubjective alienation that we're experiencing through screen media and um, social media. But I just wanted to talk about this because it has to be spoken about this article that was written about by a critic about this show, which took it extremely literally and provoked an extremely strong response. And obviously, everybody's entitled to a response. And so I will give my entitled response to this guy's response, which is one of the things that this relied on was this word that gets bandied about so much, gaze. And again, I had another experience about a week ago where... Um, I was encountered with somebody who seemed to be into psychoanalysis, who seemed to misunderstand the fact that all of psychoanalysis is predicated on gaze, which is the place within the visual field where we experience lack looking back at us. So the gaze of the analyst we see, precisely, we only come to understand or get some kind of purchase on our subjective experience by experiencing gaze, seeing ourselves in the eyes of someone who themselves is divided. If I have to hear one more fucking time that Freud and Lacan were like patriarchal or 
you know, a man sitting there telling you about your life. This is precisely the opposite of psychoanalysis, precisely the opposite. You address your public, your public being this divided other. So it was all to do with gaze, and this was a mean gaze. But of course, this is a huge misunderstanding in media studies about this gendered gaze. No, gaze is a universal lacking experience, whether you like beyond gender. Sorry, if you're saying male gaze, dominion, that's not gaze. Something else, use another name. Well, I mean, we use this, but it, don't pretend that it's coming from Lacan. Anyway, um, but this, another aspect of this that was really is something that has sort of come up in this sort of like faux critical theory um, is so gaze is one, and then power, this idea of the master slave dialectic. Oh my God, this is not what the master slave dialectic is at all. We have this ideological, like the, the, this master signifies today, but I, mean, I think most of it is like harm. And that came out in this article as well, this idea of like harm, he's doing harm to these people. But this idea of power, and obviously loads of critical theory owes itself, you know, to Hegel, obviously. When we're talking about the master-slave dialectic in terms of a passage in the phenomenology of spirit, it refers to the dynamic that played out in um, Greco-Roman um, social structure that was meant that this society was doomed to failure because it cast contradiction onto a scapegoated other that was the bearer of lack. That well, okay. I will not use the term like because that's not really what it is. But it casts a group, i.e. slaves, as a non-dialectical subject who therefore cannot see because they are not, they're not understood as dialectical thinking subjects, the contradictions of the totalitarian system. And this leads to its own demise. It's not about Mr. Bad, Mr. Mean, Mr. Powerful. This isn't how it works. <laughs> oh, my God. It's about understanding or a lack of understanding of the divided nature of the other. And we see this so much in this commoditized um, capitalistic critical theory, which is um, an ideological support through the university. I mean, this is the university discourse, which is basically disguising the master's discourse, which is this belief that there is a, an undivided other, like the whole of capitalist logic relies on the idea that there's an undivided other. This is not the case. Hegel was not talking about this in terms of, you know, power. And there's one baddie who has all the power and the other person doesn't. And I think this show really wonderfully exposes the nature of subjectivity, the division of subjectivity through a very structured play of subjectivity. And the result is something very, very moving, very, very heartfelt, very, very human. And I'm really pleased that it was made. Yeah. Um, can I just add to that? I Yeah, I, com I completely agree about the humanness. And I think one of the incredible things that this show manages to do, and, and of course the scenes are selected, of course it's heavily edited, of course it's very careful, of course it's thought through. But what it does show you or allow you to see is even or especially in those cases where someone is lying, like actually objectively lying not not just to themselves but like for example there's a scene where a guy doesn't have a license plate on his car and uh nathan 
you know, says, isn't that illegal? We you know, what are you doing? And the guy just says, no, 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 it's fine. It's fine. Right. And he's clearly lying, right? There's clearly something amiss, right? Like either this guy just doesn't have license plate or whatever he's driving legally. Who knows? But even in this guy, you know, who is in a sense, uh, portraying himself badly, you relate to him as a human being. Because the the way he's lying and the fact that he's lying about this thing and that he persists in lying, even though he knows he's lying, is so human that it's like just unbelievably moving. And and these characters, you know, we all make judgments constantly about how we feel about each other, ourselves, um, random strangers, people we see on TV. And of course, this show does this too. Like, so for example, when you're first introduced to a character, like the, 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 the mother in inverted commas who, um, uh, Angela, who, who takes on the, you know, in a way, one of the central performance practices. Um, you know, like my initial feeling on encountering this woman uh, and hearing her voice was, Oh my God, this one's really annoying. <laughs> right. Which is also a very human reaction to have to seeing someone on a screen and like thinking, Oh God, she reminds me of this person I know who does similar things and is quite passive aggressive. And, you know, Oh, I don't really like, like her, you know, like her voice is squeaky and like whatever. My voice is squeaky. Right. I mean, it's like a pure, again, this kind of inability to differentiate between like what you don't like in the other and what you don't like about yourself or precisely what you recognize, um, in the the other and and but there are moments in in of course as there would be if you spend any time with somebody whether it's on a screen or or not that you you feel um you know some kind of proximity let's say or, or affection um as well as like you know annoyance and like you think oh god come on stop being so stupid or whatever like all of the ambivalent collected feelings that we feel for everybody including ourselves it's it's so beautifully done i think and I, yeah i i just honestly i i i mean maybe i'm in a strange mood but i just found this show like just like breathtaking and like every time it gets to a certain point he kind of takes it to a higher level and you're like, how is he doing this? Like it's amazing. It's like a kind of um, palace. Like he he constructs yeah. this palace. It's like, but this is it's not to use this word anti-fascist. But I'm going to use this word anti-fascist. But like I think this is genuinely the anti-fascist logic that we need. So because I don't know if I explain myself that well in terms of the master-slave dialectic, but this is where Orientalism is like an issue in terms of like power. You have dominion over a person when you do not acknowledge their divided subjectivity, when you think they are undivided, so they're not a human being, so they might be a child or somebody who you don't consider to have the intelligence or the perspicacity enough to be a speaking subject. That, so it, this is where Orientalism truly is the racism of capitalism or of our stage of capitalism. It's reducing the other. You have power over them. You, you do not have, it, power is not put on somebody when, well, I mean, let's say theoretically, when you acknowledge the div divided nature, therefore humanity in the other. And this show is all all about exposing. And I just love those moments, as you say, like with the, the guy with his numerology and Angela with her like crazy beliefs. But it's taken, you know, now within capitalism, within our you know, society at the moment, it's like people, it's like, give me three lines of their handwriting and I will have hang them. Give me one tweet that's crazy and I will destroy your life. These people are just randomly spouting shit, which we all do all the time. And it's just allowed to sit there. 
And then, you know, social media, this is why I like the undivided nature of social media. It's like everything is cast as this like statement that within it can be read in this 140 characters. Every ounce of awfulness that this powerful person that I've imagined that they are undivided and they know everything. No, this show does the precise opposite of that. Well, I'm so glad you guys liked it so much. <laughs> I was going to make uh, them them do Juno, audience. I was going to make them do Juno, and then I changed my mind, picked the rehearsal instead, and it seems to have worked out very nicely. No, I'm... That was, yeah, it was a while back. But no, I think this this was better. I'm glad I, I picked this instead. I I think it's really good. I I do think that part of the point of the show is to critique the method. So part of it is, part of what makes it so insightful is the ways in which it highlights that this is not straightforwardly insightful. It's only insightful once you have rejected the initial level of it. So in this sense, I, you know, I, I understand the critic insofar as the critic wants to point out that, well, it doesn't work. Well, of course it doesn't work. It works in that it doesn't work. And so there are multiple layers to this that you have to penetrate to really, I think, appreciate it. Uh, I, I wanted to ask if, because if, I often in my opening remarks will make statements that are a little bit sweeping or unfair, and then I like to ask if I've been fair. Uh, so here, I said this is a bit like an ethnography, and this has a lot of the problems which ethnographies have. Is that, am I being a little bit too sweeping in my criticism of ethnographic methods? No, I don't think so. And I, but I think it, it, what comes to mind is a, like a contemporary paradox or problem, which is to do with participant ethnography and also autofiction. I mean, we live in the era of like constant autofiction, you know, and like, you know, people have become very obsessed, uh, not with fiction, which now seems kind of out outmoded in many ways, but with autofiction, whether it's um, My Struggle, The Nausgaard, or very, you know, it's a very, also very female mode of writing where you basically thinly disguise your own life and then you write about it and it's all kind of traumatic and disturbing or whatever. And um, this is a very popular mode. And also because it's very safe, paradoxically, because if you're writing about your own life, nobody can tell you that you're wrong, right? And you're less likely to make mistakes about talking about something you're not allowed to talk about. So I actually think uh, autofiction has become like a um, protective <laughs> way of writing. Um, but I think obviously ethnography is something slightly different and participant observation, which I guess you could say that this show is, <laughs> um, you know, in, and, and obviously Nathan Fielder is all the person he's playing is as unsparing or more so towards himself as he is any of the characters in fact he's more sympathetic to the 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 actors or the real people or or anyone involved i think than he is to himself right he's constantly trying to um uh you know come to some yeah some higher position some resolution which of course he he cannot that brings with it more failures and more problems um but I think, you know, I was reminded of this recent kind of scandal where somebody was writing a paper in which they masturbated, an academic paper in which they masturbated to 
I don't know the details, like some some drawings of boys or something like this. And then this became like very scandalous. And then on the one hand, you had people defending academic freedom. Um, but often these were people who would be very censorious in other <laughs> ways about what can and can't be discussed. Um, and then you had other people who were simply appalled and disgusted, right? And, and used this as a way of saying like academia is, you know, gone wrong or whatever, something like this, or, the, or that this person, this individual is you know, paedophile or this person must be kind of um, socially shunned. Um, and I think that the the way in which the, the paper had been framed was that because he was doing it, because it was like autoethnography, that it was okay. Like, so even if it was unethical, it was unethical towards himself or something like this. Like, it, you know, and whether that excuses any potential harm or any or mitigates any harm which to go back to this question of harm or not um and i don't know maybe the show is also illustrating i think the limits of a consent model the limits of a contract model because clearly there's parts of it that deal with the signing of contracts um and the way in which people have signed away various <laughs> like Possibly. We don't know. We don't see the contracts, right? But we know that, you know, people are, as, as Benjamin said, but also thinking that they're participating in an HBO show, right? And this might be good exposure if they want to be an actor and da, 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 all these other motives. Um, yeah. So, so about the ethnography, I, I, I don't know. Like, do we think that ethnography in retrospect tells us more about the ethnographers than it does about the subjects of their, study or are they simply unable to be separated i mean clearly the moment someone enters into a scene they change the scene you know there's no way around that i guess there is no neutral observer which is i guess maybe also what his the show says yeah i i've always tended to so everybody who is in a social science discipline at one point has to kind of make a decision about what what kind of methods do you want to do? And I'm a political theorist, so you know I picked you know, my set of interpretive methods. But yeah, at, in the beginning, when you're a student, you know, there's a moment where you could decide to be, if you wanted, someone who does quant methods or someone who does qualitative methods like like ethnography. So you have to think a little bit about it in the beginning about what you want to do and how you want to do it. And of course, once you then have made your choice, it's in everybody's interest to be very quiet about the choices everybody else makes because you don't want to start a methods war where everybody's trying to delegitimate what everybody else does. And so for the most part, I just try to avoid you know, talking about, say, what economists do or talking about what, say, anthropologists do because I wouldn't want them talking about what I do because I'm sure they picked their things for their own reasons and, and wouldn't necessarily think as highly of the method I picked. Everybody quietly picks their method and then tries to turn a blind eye to the excesses of what everyone else is doing. But the public does seem to have a sense that some of the methods that we're doing are, are bunk or aren't trustworthy or aren't a good use of funds. And certain people, there's a conservative MP, for instance, uh, latched onto this scandal with Carl Anderson and his uh, sexual autoethnography. Uh, and have used it to articulate broader critiques that they have of the social sciences as a whole. And so, of course, there is a certain impulse, I think, to defend everybody against it. But to defend everybody against it would be even to defend Carl Anderson because he's part of it. Uh, if we're going to say that 
there really is, you know, yes, some methods have gone, uh, aren't really doing anything for the public and have become too much about the researchers exploring themselves or exploring their own relationships to ideas or to culture and aren't enough about dealing with real social problems, studying things for the benefit of, of ordinary people. Uh, and I, there's a question about whether that is what we should be doing. Are we here to do social science research to help people, to help regular people with real problems? Or are we doing it to study ideas for their own sake? Or are we doing it as a kind of a psychological exercise to explore? People could have these other kinds of reasons for doing research. But the public seems to think, well, if it's going to be taxpayer funded, then it ought to, in some way, help people with real problems, help workers with real problems. Since workers fund the academy, to wrestle with that is to, I think, have to acknowledge that academic research should, in some way, help workers. In some way. I think that's the minimum standard for a method, in my view, is that it's got to be, in some way, able to be useful to work, uh, the working class or to a working class movement. So... If that's the case, do these ethnographies help workers? Well, a lot of workers seem to think that they don't. And there seems to be a problem justifying these methods to these workers. And a lot of anthropologists seem to think that they shouldn't have to justify these methods to these workers uh, because the workers aren't owed an explanation because they're stupid and didn't go to college and don't understand. And I don't think that's, that's all right. At the same time, the anthropology discipline clearly has a methods crisis. It's aware that its methods are not necessarily secure and not necessarily reliable. But the way that it has tended to handle that methods crisis is by doing a bunch of internal critique over and over again about its history and its connection to imperialism and this and that. But there, there are more fundamental methods with ethnography insofar as ethnography goes, okay, I'm the educated person. Now I'm going to plunge myself into a, a scene with a bunch of uneducated people and use the fact that I have an education to make sense of what they're doing. And I'm going to, you know, be around and I'm going to observe and maybe I'm going to participate and all of that is going to help me to understand what it's like to be someone who doesn't have my education, someone who isn't of my class background. And I'm going to be able to talk about the consciousness of a different class from outside it by observing it. And there's something about that that, that I think does strike the working class person as, as Orientalist and as fetishizing. Uh, insofar as the working class, they are the subjects of these studies. They are the people who get used in ethnographies by academics looking to build careers. Uh, and does that ethnographic research help the working class insofar as the situation for workers has gotten worse over the last 40 to 50 years? The quant evidence would seem to be that it doesn't. So I think there's a legitimate grievance to be made about ethnography. And I think part of why a lot of people get upset about Nathan Fielder is that he's, his work displays some of the things that are ridiculous about it. And some people go, well, it's just because he's playing a character that's out of touch. You know, if he was a proper anthropologist who was empathetic and theoretically you know, aware, you know, then he would be learning what he's meant to be learning. Or we would be learning what we're meant to be learning. But because Nathan Fielder you know, isn't a real anthropologist or uh, is, is too socially inept, we can't and he can't learn those things or have those experiences. Uh, and I, I don't think that's a true 
statement about Nathan Fielder. I think Nathan Fielder is very sensitive. And I think he pr- pretends to not be, in part to lampoon and to parody the kinds of people who do ethnographies and who uh, engage in all seriousness in these kinds of studies. Is there something in, um, you know, so talking about the like criticism of this show that I hear all the time in the media on this on the side of when something is about to be made or when something is discussed when it's first getting made is this is an urgent it's urgent this is an urgent whatever and there is you know we are in a really shit era it is shit and I think that you know there is a potentially a tendency within the media class to feel this responsibility. And it's all very serious. It's deadly serious. Again, this is like the, the master signifier of harm. You know, this is, we're going to harm, people are dying. This is so serious. But, and this is where you, you see so much of the conflict, um, the cultural conflicts that have replaced politics are to do with um, take, being so, being feeling the responsibility of being so serious as to take literally everything and read in the tea leaves of someone's online legacy something that isn't there um and it's this it's this sort of the the the, but you know it's it is understandable that people feel but again it's this you know the confidence that you're you're talking about with this you know elite person going in reading and judging another group of people again there is this this, the arrogance of this sort of responsibility when the media was not, I mean, this is obviously just in the, in the most um, idealistic way. Obviously, it always has been on the side of ideology, but it's not the role of these individuals to be so um, anxiously judgmental and, and religiously certain and literalist, but rather to convey a reality, to paint a reality. And, you know, so ethnography in a certain sense is like it's attempting to at least paint a reality. And I guess, you know, journalism maybe believes it's painting a reality too. But there is this um, presence on the part of, uh, for instance, a journalist these days that is to do with responsibility. And you see this so much in film in terms of, you know, that that everything has to have this sort of non-utilitarian, utilitarian value. And it's like we've decided this is the problem with society and this is the solution because we know this is the solution because this is what feels right to us as people who have university degrees. And we've decided that in order to solve the problems of society, we need to show this, we need to do that, we need to tell people that this is a terrible thing and this is urgent. But it really is missing the nature of what it is to be a human subject living in society and things aren't quite so you know, human subjects are not quite so literal. Our interactions are not quite so literal. Our marks on the world are not quite so literal. We, there is something highly emancipatory in a joke. A joke is literally the most left-wing thing. A joke is the rebound of contradiction in logic. It's where things are not total. It's where you know, you have one one aspect of a reality simultaneously true with another aspect, and those two things come up against each other. Capitalist logic is totalitarian, promises wholeness, promises completeness, is religious, is, is you know, that there is this essence, there is some transcendent that will, will make you whole and complete. Jokes do the opposite. And it's not just because something aesthetically looks like 
the urgent and correct thing to do, if it is done in this literalist, um, you know, bad infinite, we're going in this direction, as you say, Whig progress narrative, that's the totalitarian logic. And the joke is the emancipatory thing. I think, yeah, I mean, it's interesting in the, for reflecting on this in the current context, which, you know, of course has seen like Salman Rushdie attacked and at one end and Jerry Sadovitz, the comedian show cancelled at the other, right? <laughs> and in between that, you have all of these other, uh, I don't know, reflections or opportunities to reflect on the past, you know, I don't know, 10, 15 years at least, or I mean, it's longer since Rushdie had the fatwa, but like this question of what is uh, acceptable, permitted, um, encouraged, uh, censored, cancelled, no platform, platformed, you know, within our culture and how that has shifted. And I think we're in this very interesting moment, in fact, which, which may be reaching a kind of, um, I don't know, hopefully a a mature discussion, and I mean mature also in the funny sense, as in a, a discussion that can deal with jokes and contradictions and difference and, you know, conflicting opinions. Because really, at the end of the day, like, we're all quite similar. But on the other hand, we do have like strong disagreements about things, right? And, and clearly, um, you know, the vast majority of people would like to de-escalate bad situations where there's kind of serious violent tension and possibility of violence. And on the other hand, there are occasional violent actions, right, which are done in the name of some ideology. And um, <laughs> I, you know, I think everyone is maybe trying to uh, work out a way of dealing with, you know, a variety of complicated things to do with who is being hurt, how, how we deal with, like, uh, uh, you know, negative feelings, uh, what outlets we have culturally to cope with things like tragedy and suffering, um, you know, the question of preferences. I mean, the kind of the stuff around the Sadovitz was so strange when you read the statement from the um, theatre, which said, oh, we don't believe in censoring comedians, but we don't feel like we, this show has any place with us, you know, and it was sort of, can we read this as a contradiction or did this statement make sense? Like, on the terms of the theatre's own thinking, like very bizarre. And I think we're confronted very obviously with a whole series of contradictions that are being played out in real time to do with whether people think that some people should be allowed to say what they should be allowed to talk about, uh, you know, where harm is, it, you know, are words violence or is only physical violence violence um, and what the difference between a threat and a reality is and, and all of these sorts of things. Um and I, I do think it's quite like revealing maybe that, I mean, people was, was looking at some Facebook comments um, by people on the left who are very pro free speech, who are angry with other parts of the left for, for not saying anything about what's just happened to Salman Rushdie, you know, as if that the, they, they, um, would be somehow entering into hypocrisy if they condemned what happened to Rushdie because in another way they are in favor of censorship and you know they they are perhaps being consistent in not wishing to condemn Rushdie or condemn the threats against JK Rowling um because on some level there's this question about like who deserves it right it's like well who threw the first stone <laughs> um which is an endless anthropological problem and if you think that someone deserves it you think it's okay if they get threatened or hurt even 
I think there's a chunk of people who have kind of uh, adopted in the name of post-colonialism an attitude that if a post-colonial state adopts a non-liberal set of policies, that uh, room has to be made for that because that's an attempt on the part of that post-colonial state to recover something of its pre-liberal capitalist self. And the people who are hurt in the course of that state attempting to recover this pre-capitalist cultural essence that it's supposed to have had, uh, that those people are just uh, casualties, acceptable casualties in that process. And I think that that is a very Orientalist way to think about other countries, and to, even to suggest that there is some kind of pre-colonial essence that one could return to, or uh, I think is, is deeply mistaken. And not supported by the evidence. The, the history is Do you know what? all parts of the world interacting all the time. I saw the insanest thing. So we did a, a show about Vox videos the other day, and there's somebody who makes uh, YouTube videos that I think needs to work for Vox and Fox because it's very similar aesthetic. And it was about Europe's history in the world. And I've never seen something so reductive, so gummy bear wrong. And so actually kind of racist <laughs> in its attempt to not be so. And it, it's crazy. I mean, I don't know. The sure concept yeah. of Europe is anti-historical. The concept of Europe is ideological. Yeah. The Roman Empire is on three continents. What, on, in what way does that make any sense? The Roman Empire is on three continents, but China's on just one. And then this notion that you know, African and Asian and European are three different races, but they were all part of the same state and there was trade and movement throughout the Mediterranean for hundreds of years. It's entirely rubbish yeah, but to it's taking treat Europe as distinct or separate from it, the rest of the Eurasian African landmass. It's using the same logic as those who required papering, you know, a narrative to paper over the exploitation that was being done in the name of capital at a certain point in history. It's literally agreeing with those people to, to, to define things in the way that it was in this video. And it's like, that's not, it may have been a historical error to do this, but why are we not saying that this is a historical, well, I, I, error in the sense that it was, it's wrong. It's, uh, you know, obviously wrong, but in all, it was done for, in yeah. order for something to be disguised. But what people instead do is they continue with the same conceptual frame, but mm -hmm. flip the normative valence. Yeah. So they continue to use Europe, Africa, and Asia as three distinct places, but then flip which is to be normatively celebrated and which is to be normatively critiqued, which is not overcoming no. the mistaken conceptual frame which treats Europe and Asia and Africa as, as distinct in different places. Yep. Now, highlighted by the extraordinarily arbitrary decision to draw the boundary between Europe and Asia at the Ural Mountains. It's like, oh, yeah, you know, there are actually two continents in, in uh, the United States. There's the part that's west of the Rocky Mountains and the part that's east. Those are actually two continents now. I mean, the Rocky Mountains are a bigger mountain range than the Urals. So I guess there are two continents. And really, you know, people from west of the Rocky Mountains, they're an entirely different group. It's, it's just ludicrous. It's mad. If the United States collapsed, though, you could easily see people doing it. You know, the Appalachians, they're east of the Appalachians is one continent, and west of the Rockies is another continent. And in the middle, you have this other continent of you know, 
poor Midwesterners with crazy religious beliefs, and those people are, you know, the, the backward people. You, know, you could easily see something like that happening if the United States collapsed and then 2,000 years passed after that. Mm-hmm. But it would be just as ridiculous as saying that there's a Europe and an Asia and an Africa. It's crazy talk. All right, we're at an hour. So thank you guys so much for listening and have a wonderful rest of the day. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.